I would like to speak to you about what was read in the morning. And the guys always remind me when I mess up their schedule of reading, I ask them to please read my text so we could save that time from the sermon. And my desire is to speak to you from John 10, 1 through 21, not word by word, but an overall handling of the text, considering the Good Shepherd. I'll just reread the first six verses where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Amen. Now, if we, could, if we keep reading the passage, we will realize that as Jesus is explaining the figure of speech they did not understand, he's repeating himself. And John uses that technique of old writers, old Middle East wisdom writers of circling back. It's parallelism in circles. He repeats the same and adds another element. So that's why I ask the guys to please read the passage for me as we will unfold it as time goes by. But in this passage, the first thing that strikes me is, if I would ask you, what is the difference between a hobby and a calling? Or the difference between a career and a calling? Or a vocation? Or the difference between a hobby and your job? What would you say? You may have many answers, but you, you engage on both. You may like both. Money is a difference. Or perhaps the way money is related to those activities. And in this passage, Jesus throws and pitches a contrast between him, the good shepherd, and those who are not good shepherds. Now, the passage comes on the heels of the healing of the blind man. When he healed the blind man, there was this argument between the Pharisees, even between themselves, they were divided, and the blind man and his family who was healed. But the, the argument ends in, this guy cannot come from God, the Pharisees said. And others said, but how can a guy who does not come from God open the eyes of the blind? And that issue comes in still into chapter 10. It would probably be part of the same chapter of the same argumentation. How can somebody who is demon-possessed, as the Pharisees would ac accuse Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of the devil, how could a person who is demon-possessed can speak how he speaks and can do the works he does? You may remember C.S. Lewis' trilemma. What is the problem that a person who rejects Jesus has? Well, we have some options with Jesus. He was a liar. He was delusional. Or he was who he claimed to be. Was he a liar? 
Do you think a person who goes all the way to the cross because of his message and mission does it lying? Liars come to, when they come to reality, they stop their lying. Delusional. Do you think the person who spoke the Sermon of the Mount was a crazy man? Do you think the person who prayed the prayer of John 17 was delusional? You cannot say Jesus was delusional. The person whose wisdom has changed even a lot of our sayings, that we say them and we don't know we are repeating words from the Lord, then Louis says you have only one option. He is who he said he is. And in this passage he says, I am the good shepherd. Now the ones who were hearing that had heard in their synagogues, and if they knew how to read, perhaps they had read the words of Psalm 23 a poem that had been penned a thousand years before this occasion. And in that Psalm 23, David said, The Lord Adonai is my shepherd, or literally is shepherding me. And because he is shepherding me, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me through quiet waters, and so forth and so on. And those Jews who knew that David said, Adonai, the Lord, Yahweh is my shepherd, hear this man who just opened the eyes of the blind man say, I am the good shepherd. No wonder the passage ends in the Jews trying to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. Yes, he did. He claimed to be God because indeed he was God on earth. Now, that true shepherd pitches himself against those who were shepherding Israel. And who were the shepherds of Israel over the last 400 years? The Pharisees and the scribes. And he makes this connection with the Tanakh by saying, I, the good shepherd, am the true door to the sheep. I am the one who is really the sent one from God, those who came before me, and they are circling around you. He's telling the audience, those are thieves and are robbers. But I am the door to the sheep. That is the setting and the context of the passage. Now from it, I want to consider three things. And I'm not going to go word by word, verse by verse, but I want to take three things out of the passage of John 10, 1 through 21. The uniqueness of the shepherd, the mission of the shepherd, and the authority of the shepherd. What do I mean by the uniqueness of the shepherd? What we just read in verses 1 through 6, that there is but one good shepherd. Peter in 1 Peter 5 calls him the prince shepherd. And whomever else is a shepherd under him is just an under-shepherd, is just a servant. But the chief prince shepherd is him. The good shepherd is Jesus. Jesus is the door to God's sheephold. There is no other way to access God. It is not in our text. It's four chapters later. But he says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Paul, 30 years later, repeats that saying, There is only one God and one mediator, Jesus Christ the man. There is not many mediators. 
Oh, but the saints can mediate for me. No, they can't. Oh, but maybe the mother of Jesus can mediate for me. No, she can't. The Bible clearly states one God, one mediator, the mediator, the way, the truth, the life is only Jesus. He is the door to the sheep. Very exclusive language. I know that it is a capital sin in our day. You cannot say, I have the truth. Oh, no. The truth is relativistic. You can say that, by the way, that everything is relative, and that is an absolute truth, but you cannot say, well, Jesus is the truth. It's so contradictory. Even moral relativism, when it states itself as, no, there's no truth, it's already stating that truth. But that's another story. It's a philosophical contradiction. Why go there? Now, in the text, Jesus is not only that unique, exclusive, and only shepherd, the only door of access and way to the sheep, but there is this affection or connection that is hierarchical and affectionate between sheep and shepherd. He leads them, they follow. He knows them, calls them by name. And the sheep recognize his voice. The sheep know their shepherd, but most importantly, the shepherd knows the sheep. Big difference. I can say, oh, ah, I know Vanessa. Yeah. Does Vanessa know me? That's another story. And the text has that hierarchical connection between the two. And this love, by the way, when the shepherd says, and I love them, it's selective, affectionate, choosing love. This no for a Jew was not intellectual knowledge as it was for the Greeks. Knowing for a Jew was this. Adam knew his wife and they had a child. Now, if you have children, you didn't have your children because you made a biographical study of your wives. You know what you guys did to have your children. Exactly the same language. The shepherd has this intimate, affectionate, selective love for the sheep. In fact, it is the shepherd who buys and chooses the sheep and not all the way around. The sheep, says the text, do not follow the voice of strangers. They know their shepherd and they know their voice. Point number two. The mission of the shepherd is to rescue the sheep. That's what appears in verses 7 to 11. The shepherd, that is Jesus, he did not come as a moral example. One thing I learned early in my Christian life is that every team wants to have Jesus in theirs. If you're a communist, even if you're an atheist, oh no, no, Jesus was the first communist. If you're a Gnostic and you really do not believe what the Bible teaches, oh no, no, Jesus was the first Gnostic. If you're a Muslim, a Muslim told me that, oh no, no, we have Jesus as the 
ultimate and greatest prophet. Muhammad is the last, but Jesus is the greatest. And there are even stories of Muslims who come to the Lord because they are told that Jesus is the greatest prophet. Well, let me find out about this greatest prophet, and they end up becoming Christians. I don't know if it is true or not, but I've read about them. Probably you have to. So, but Jesus is not that either. He came primarily as Savior. And the mission of the shepherd is outlined in the passage when he says, I came to lay down my life for the sheep. He was born, but he was born to die. I love the Christmas season. Love it. Love the Christmas tree, the lights. I don't care too much for the major scenes because I don't care too much for images. But anyways, I love the Christmas season. The problem with the Christmas season is that you may strip the purpose of Jesus' birth. He was not born to be a baby. There's, there's, whenever I hear the baby Jesus thing, something inside me cringes. He's not a baby. He's a king, crowned, seated in majesty on high. When John saw him resurrected, he fell dead at his feet. He's not a baby anymore. Because he came to die. He was born to give his life. That is the centrality and purpose of his mission. And then Jesus pitches himself in that section of John 10, just repeating, just remember, it's parallelism. It's circling back against those thieves and those robbers. A language, by the way, that the audience knew. Because in the synagogues, they were read and taught about the prophets. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel particularly taught against those who were false shepherds who actually devoured the flock and used the flock to feed themselves. So when Jesus says the others are thieves and robbers, and yes, he's pointing the Pharisees, he's also reminding the people of what God had already warned them. In the prophets, hundreds of years before, because yes, the Pharisees were greedy. Jesus says they go to the homes of the widows to devour those homes. By pretext, they make long prayers, but all of that is just to hide their lust and their greed. And your people who live in Miami, in America, in the 21st century, you have TVs in your homes, and you have YouTube and TikTok and all of that. And I don't need to tell you about the merchant or the business or the den of robbers that religion, evangelical religion, has become in this country. I don't need to tell you that. You know it as well as I do. I like to put this plug for those who are visiting. You didn't see an offering pass you by, right? It's intentional. We don't want your money. We need money to pay electricity, to pay all of this stuff, but nobody makes money in this church. This is not about the money. Now, if you give money, it's going to go to benevolence. It's going to go to missions. It's going to go, hopefully, to pay electricity. Yes, because we need it. If not, it's going to be really hot, especially the summer coming. But... This is not about the money. Now, there's a lot of places that are about the money. And Jesus says, no, I am not one of those thieves and robbers 
who come to feed themselves from the sheep. The good shepherd didn't come to take. He came to give. To give what? To give his life in rescue for the ship, for the sheep, and to give abundant life to the sheep. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. It's not just life eternal in duration. It is life in purpose. It is life to the glory of God. It is life to one day be exercised in its fullest, in the very presence of God and of Christ, to be what you were made to be, to reflect the glory of God. Yesterday, I, a friend of mine invited me to the Formula One qualification rounds. And I just saw the cars blow by me. It's impressive to see a car from here to the wall going by you at 350. 200 miles an hour. It's impressive. And I was just, at a moment, I stopped and I said, God made this creature capable of inventing machines and devices that do things. And whenever I see the four wheels, I think on the animals. They all run in four wheels, and they are four-wheel drive. (laughs) Why? Because we imitate God. We should just do what our Creator does because He made us in His image. Jesus says, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly, but my life is miserable. Wait, one day in the resurrection, it will no longer be the case because the shepherd came to give his life for the sheep. In our search for meaning and for identity, Don't waste your time seeking meaning and identity in what you do, what you are, what you have, who you know. Our meaning and identity is in, according to 1 Corinthians 1.31, he who boasts, let him her boast in the Lord. In my shepherd, I find my identity. Let me make a little parenthesis and a theological note, because I would be remiss if I don't do it. Notice in the text. That Jesus says, I came to give my life for the sheep. You guys studied with Victor and Freddie and with someone else the doctrines of grace not too long ago in Sunday school. That is particular redemption. Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible. He says, I am the door of the sheep and my sheep will enter and follow me. He didn't come to say, standing at the door, hey... If you want, come, come, and I am there, and I decide if I really want to come. That's not the gospel I read in the Bible. That's not the God I serve. That's not the Savior who came for his sheep. When we sing, my name is written on his hands, who did the writing? I just took my pen, and, oh, I forgot my pen today, Freddie. I just took my pen and said, hey, God, let me me have your hand. Please write here, Edwin Gonzalez. Is that the way it works? No. Before the foundation of the world, before anything happened, before the first second, the first milli or nanogram of matter, before the first nano-erg of energy, before the first nanomillimeter of space, before everything, God said, 
I'm going to write the names of my sheep. And he told his son, you go and rescue them because they will blow it. That is the gospel. The other stuff is perhaps a good thing to make you feel good about yourself and to elevate your self-esteem. But the book is not about our self-esteem. The book is about the glory of the shepherd of the sheep who came to save. Then there is this parenthesis in the passage, verses 12 through 15, about the hireling. And again, John circles back to the same topics. That's why I didn't want to read it all and have the guys read it at the beginning. This is a parenthesis, but it, Jesus has, al- has already mentioned who are these false shepherds. In context, the Pharisees. But in general, anyone who sets himself over God's people. And this language was known to Israel. I'm just going to read one passage from Ezekiel 34, 23. This is what was said to the Israelites by Ezekiel, to the first group that had been exiled to Babylon. And he prophesied to them close to the river Kebar. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed their flock? I will appoint over them one shepherd, my servant David. But David had died a couple of centuries before that, so it couldn't be David. And he will feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd. And who is that? The son of David who came to say, I am the good shepherd. The one of whom Ezekiel spoke about. The one of whom David spoke about. And then, remember that warning that I think Daron brought it last week. About those who want to set themselves over God's people and have positions of preeminence. Don't. James says it is dangerous to be in that position of shepherding over God's people because according to James 3.1, they will receive a stricter judgment. What judgment? The judgment of people. You know, one of the good things, and I'll tell you a secret, one of the good things about me being able to teach and preach, but I'm not the pastor, Freddie is, I don't get the criticism. He does. He gets so many complaints. Sometimes he calls me just to vent. And he may not tell you anything about it. He won't just smile and walk. But I know that feeling. That there's a little thing. Why do you have that there and not there? And then you complain to the pastor. Because you know what? In the church I come from, then go back. (laughs) Honestly. That's the stricter judgment and condemnation shepherds receive. Not only them, their wives, also their children, and whatever surrounds them. Don't procure this place if you're in for the glory, because you're going to get a lot of bites and kicks. That's the reality of life. Now, those who are shepherds, they are endowed with the love of God and the love of Christ, and they suffer it because they serve the prince shepherd. It's part of life. Now, the others, Jesus described them as hirelings or higher hands. Those who do their job for money, but they do not care for the sheep. In those days, shepherds faced many dangers. They would have to fight savage beasts 
They would have to even put their own lives at risk to care for the sheep. I love David's resume as a shepherd. He was a 16-year-old boy, not even completely developed as a man. Saul says, you cannot find that guy. And David says, oh, yes, I can. But David, you're a kid. Yes, but your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. I love that passage. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, lion and bear, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I can you imagine that? I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. I can take that guy. He's tall. He's 9'6", but I can take him. Wow. It's like guy at a court. Yeah, I've guarded LeBron. I can guide this 6'1", too. That's pretty much what David said. That's what shepherds did. That's the imagery that Jesus has in mind, but not the hireling. He says, oh, no, no, the hireling, when the wolf comes, he flees because he doesn't care for the sheep. He doesn't have a connection for the sheep. He doesn't have that hierarchical and affectionate link with the sheep. The shepherds, the true shepherds, had a vested interest in the sheep. They risked their lives for the sheep. They named the sheep. You guys, you probably saw it, the old man who rescued a little dog from an alligator at a lake here in Florida. Yeah, because that's the way you love your sheep if you're a shepherd. You love them as you love your pets if you're a pet lover. And that's what Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I love my sheep. I put my life for the sheep. The hireling, no. The hireling serves for a salary. The hireling sees the sheep as a means of gain. I'm going to say something. It's okay if you're a pastor and you are paid to be a pastor. It's okay. The Bible says those who serve in the ministry ought to be fed from the ministry. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a pastor full-time, well-paid, well-supplied to do the work of the ministry because the Bible commands it and at times commands it. Now, when you're in that position, there's a problem. People are market share customers and a source of income. I'm not saying this of all of those who are full-time in ministry. But I would imagine how difficult it is. I know how much I suffer when I lose a deal in Komatsu. And I imagine that if you lose a family that gives a lot and you know that your livelihood is there, that must create some psychological tension if you're full-time. And I've never been full-time, even when I was a pastor. My point being is, and I'm not saying these are all full-time pastors, of course, because many men of God are and well-deserved, and they are worthy of double honor. My point is that those who are not true shepherds see the sheep as a means of gain. They do it for the money. They find a better opportunity elsewhere, and guess what? Oh, the Lord is calling me to serve where? At a bigger, better, nicer church with a better package. The Lord is calling you to do that? Maybe, but I would inspect my heart because the heart is deceitful. And that's what Jesus is describing. Those shepherds do not have a personal connection to the sheep. 
And because they don't have a personal connection to the sheep, they do not love the sheep. Hirelings will not risk their lives for the sheep because they serve for a retainer. I was using the example of lawyers the other day. And I, don't, I don't mean it in a negative sense, but this is the reality. <clears throat> when you retain a lawyer and you're having issues and you call the lawyer, guess what? Four or $500 an hour. It's not like calling a pastor. You can call Freddie at 3 a.m. and it's going to be free. Please don't do it. But if you call Vanessa at 3 a.m., it's going to be, I don't know how much money, and then time and a half because it was overtime. Now, nothing wrong with being a lawyer and charging for your services. My point is that there is a difference between being a shepherd and being retained for your services. And I would rather have limited gift individuals who have been endowed with the love of Christ to serve the sheep than well-paid professionals who do their job pristinely, but they are not connected affectionately. To God's sheep. And then finally, the authority of the shepherd, verses 16 through 18. He lays his own life. How many times have I, not, have I not said it? Many times. Well, Jesus said it four or five times in the passage. Because that is the point of the text. That the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, in verses 16 through 18, he adds a little nuance. And it is this. And he does it voluntarily. Nobody takes his life from him. Jesus says, that's why the Father loves me. Because I lay my life for the sheep. It is not that people took it away from me. A couple of incidents in the Bible where people try to kill Jesus. One occasion they try to just throw him off a cliff. And he just walks through them. And the text says, because his hour had not arrived. When his hour arrived, he delivered his life voluntarily. Nobody took it away from him. He's not the martyr of Golgotha. He humbled himself. And that is a wonder of the gospel. Not regarding equality with God. Not considering the privileges he had as God. He humbled himself, divested himself of his divine privileges. Not of his divine nature, that is impossible. He was always God. But on earth, he walked like one of us, tempted and tried in all things, touched with every weakness of ours, except that he did not sin. So when you think nobody understands you, I know somebody who understands you and then some. Because everything we're touched with, he was. With every affliction, we are afflicted, he was. To go to the cross and put his life for the sheep. Conclusion, the love of the shepherd. That's what I gather from the text. The love of the shepherd. One of my favorite passages is Galatians 2.20. And we use Galatians 2.20 in so many contexts. With Christ, I am crucified. 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And to me that is mind-boggling because Paul uses me. Now, he doesn't use me the way many of the modern songs use me. This is God and he's doing things for me. And it is about me and I and my circumstances. And I am singing these praises to this God who is my servant. That's not the way Paul is using me. Paul is using as the subject the Son of God who died. And the Son of God who gave himself. And the Son of God who loved. But then he appears as the direct object. He loved me. He died for me. He gave himself up for me. And the love of the shepherd, that particular redemption is the motivation to service. The love of the shepherd is the motivation and the basis to love one another. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. But that's all. That's in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, but here's the new. Jesus says that you love one another as I have loved you. That's why John wrote in his epistle, we know love in that God sent his son to die for us. And so we are to put our lives for the brethren. That is the basis of loving one another. The love of the shepherd. Don't let anyone enslave you to sheer duty. I was raised that way. Duty, 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 duty. Beloved, service is a result of love. Yeah, I serve Komatsu because they pay me. I serve Komatsu because they give me an annual evaluation. I better at least meet requirements because if I need improvement in everything, I know that's going to be an issue. And an envelope is going to come with a package for me to leave because we don't pay you. You're not doing what we pay you for. That's different. But no, not the shepherd. We serve the shepherd. We serve one another because he loved us. And we love him back. Paul says the love of Christ controls us. The original word is pulls us apart. It's like the love of Christ wraps you by the hands and by your legs and pulls in every direction, constrains us, stretches us. How does the love of Christ stretches us? Because we have concluded this, says Paul, that if one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for them that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who lived and died for them. Even our giving, even our giving, we don't pass a plate. Why? Because even our giving, we don't care to give to sow a seed for God to bless me. No, God has already blessed me. You know why we give, Paul says? 
You give because Christ, being rich, made himself to be poor, that in his poverty we might become rich. You know what that does? Removes everything away from your giving. If you give too little, like most of us do, and sometimes we weep out of the little we give because we have little faith, we say, well, Lord, you gave it all for me. I bathe this little giving in your grace. And if you give a lot, you still say, Lord, I am not giving everything as you did it. So please, even this lot, bathe it in your grace. It is all about him. And what we do, we do it for the love of Christ, for the love of the shepherd who came to give his life for the sheep. Amen. Father, bless your word and encourage us by knowing you love us. Encourage us, prod us, lift us up by bathing in the reality of the shepherd's love who knows his sheep, who calls them by name, who has them written in his hands, and who paid the penalty we could not. Be honored, be glorified, and help us to honor and serve you in love as we serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.